you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. When Joshua arose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim, they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Well, that was chapter three. Now, this morning I'm going to be looking at chapter three and chapter four, and they're, they're quite dense chapters, so hopefully we'll have the Bible uh, quotations as we go through, but if you are uh, following in your, your phone or your hard, Bible, hard copy Bible, you'll see as we go along where, where we're drawing from. So, all right, I want to ask a question as we begin. Um, who has been to Buckley's Falls in Heighton? Far away, <laughs> yes, we all have been to, well, not all of us, many of us have been to Buckley's Falls. It's a, fa- it's a favorite spot for my family. The kids, I think we've got a, a photo here. Uh, we love to like go along, the kids play on the rocks and, and they hop across that. You can see just where this photo is taken. You can hop across, oh, wait a sec, wait a sec, stop, stop, stop. Uh, we'll go there in a second. <laughs> you can see actually how, um, how narrow the river is. That, well, let's go back there now. Uh, that is the, the river of... Where do you think that next photo is? Not that one, next one. That one. Where do you think that river is? Anyone know? It's the Jordan. And, uh, and, and who do you think that uh, little blonde uh, bombshell at the front is there? No less than our connections coordinator, Rachel Francis. You're welcome, Rachel. Didn't clear it with her, but there you are. Uh, that was taken in 1988. And as you can see, it looks just like an Australian creek, at least there. There's gum trees. I remember when, when I first saw the Jordan River, I was like, that's it? That's really disappointing. Like, you can literally just wade across there. It, it, you're not out of your depth in that part. That is 
the Jordan River. Now, this next photo is the Barwon River. Actually, it might actually be a clip, I'm not sure. This is quite amazing here. A anyone oh, remember boy. that? Like two or three months ago? Yeah, that was exactly the same spot where that first photo at Buc Buckley's Falls was taken. Same river, very different uh, circumstances. Now, the Jordan River's like that as well. Uh, when I visited the Jordan River, it was just a little stream, really. But in spring, in early spring, with the meltwaters running, the Jordan River overflows its banks and it becomes actually up to a kilometre wide uh, of just this sort of boiling water, similar to that picture you saw of the, of the, the Barwon River. And it becomes, it's, it's covering vegetation on its banks, um, so it's actually really treacherous and pretty much impossible to cross. That's the Jordan River, and chapter 3 opens with the people of Israel on the wrong side of the Jordan River when it's in flood. They're on the east bank, they're going across onto the west bank where Jericho is and the promised land is, but in between them is this river, not the little creek, the roaring, flooded River. It's one of the most significant moments in the Old Testament. As Megan said, it's surrounded by a number of significant moments, so we sometimes don't always concentrate on it. But this is one of the big moments in the history of God's people, Israel. And God is teaching his people some amazing things through this moment. And we're God's people, further down the track, and there are principles about our God and about ourselves that God wants to teach us from this same passage. So we're going to look at it this morning. And I've only got three simple points this morning. And the first one is God designed this deliberately to happen. All right, you go, of course he did. Yes, because God's sovereign. But my point is that God designs this moment on the, on the Barwon, on the Jordan River, deliberately and intentionally. So chapter 3, verse 3. It says, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests... Then you'll set out from your place and follow it. So the ark of God is going first. God is guiding and directing his people and he brings them here. Now my point is, if God had waited two or three more weeks, you know, I know the people just hung out at camp somewhere for another three weeks, they could get to the Jordan River and wade across. No problem. Just three weeks, God. Come on, be, you're patient all these years. Three more weeks and you just walk through the Jordan River literally. And even then, if, okay, God, if you're really set on this time, it has to be now, well, you walk about a day's march, 20 kilometers max, you walk up the banks of the Jordan River, and you can wade across there as well, even when it's flooding. But very clearly we see that God brings his people to a moment of crisis at the Jordan River when it's in flood, and he does it on purpose. And it's so like God to do this, you know? So like God. Um, I think, you know, I think if I were God, I would give my people a really kind of easy road into heaven. You know, well paved and um, maybe a little gentle incline so at the end of each day you feel like you've done something and you could sleep well, but, but nothing more. You know, no hills and no valleys and no blind spots and rough terrain, but that's not how God works. Uh, if you're not yet a Christian, this will well, tell you how he works. If you are, you know it. God leads his beloved people through difficult times. 
He places them at Jordan rivers in their life many, many times. Sometimes it can be the Jordan River of illness, the Jordan River of, of relationship strain, be the Jordan River of financial pressures, you name it. Very often God brings his people to what seems to be an impassable problem, a crisis of faith. And, and the reality is, one day, unless Jesus comes before then, each and every one of us will come through the valley of the shadow of death and we'll see the Jordan River flowing at the bottom of it fast, deep, seemingly impassable. So that's the first thing we see, that God deliberately brings his people to this moment of crisis. Didn't have to, but does. And then the question is, well, why? Why would God do this? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but we get some very clear hints. And one of the things I find interesting is if you you read through the text, you find that, that God has the people of Israel camping beside the Jordan River for three days. Now, I know when it's winter especially, and I feel like I'm going to have that early morning swim in the pool, the longer that you wait, the harder it gets, yeah? It's like, let's just get this over with, let's dive in. Well, maybe the people of Israel, I don't know, but he has them wait for three whole days where presumably they could hear the roar of the river, maybe they could see it in the distance. And at least with me, that's like three days of increasing anxiety and panic about this whole thing. He does it deliberately. And I think the reason is... Um, he does it deliberately because he wants them to know how big the problem really is. You see, at that time of the year, out of the huge company of the people of Israel, maybe a few of the strongest men might be able to get across alive. But what about the, what about the women and the rest of the men and the kids? And you've got to think about it, uh, those of you who've got little kids... The Sinai wilderness for 40 years is, hasn't got many swim schools. So how are you going to learn to swim if you're in Sinai? The answer, you're not. So the overwhelming majority of people, even if the river was only 10 feet deep and it was still and calm, they're in trouble. Some might make it across, but it's going to be a carnage. And think about property. Think about the ark and all the possessions. It's going to be a mess. And God's point is that if it's going to be done then they're going to need help. It's not going to be them that does it. So God, I think, brings them to this point, and we see in the text, he says, they need to see that if they're going to enter the promised land and they're going to do all the things, like take the promised land, then God is going to have to do it. Their strength and their resources are not enough. And that was so important for them to understand. And you know what? It's very important for us too. You and I, brothers and sisters, no, not you're not an ex- None of your exceptions, we are glory-hungry creatures. We long for the glory to be able to say, yeah, we did it. We did it. We, we did it. Here was the problem, and we brought our ingenuity and our resources together, and we solved the problem, and yeah, we did it. Aren't we great? And, uh, and you might say, oh, I don't think I'm like that. I think we all are, deep down. And so, and so for example, when we think about salvation... So if you are a Christian, you've been saved. If you're not yet a Christian, you have yet to be saved. That's, that's the stark reality. But if you've been saved, I know, at least for me, and I suspect for you as well, I don't like thinking that I couldn't do anything about it. 
So I was saved and I think, yes, but I was humble enough to listen to God's word, wasn't I? Other people weren't. And you know what? I, I was actually starting to do some good things in my life anyway. Like there were some problems and I was trying to fix those problems. And, and so, you know, when God looked and saw me, he kind of went like, yeah, Andrew's given it a crack. I, I think I'm going to save him. Good job. Well done. D- don't you and I think that? But the Bible is like the New Testament. It's like a sledgehammer and it smashes you over and over again. It says, you can't do it. You can't, and, and, we, and we bristle. So Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we think brackets, well, except me, not, you know, but, but the Bible is a slip, because no, and then, um, and we say, well, at least I could contribute a little bit, couldn't I? If God's going to save me, I could my faith, you know, like I, I came with my faith and, and God saved me. And, and so, you know, he couldn't have done that without my faith. And yet Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, right? It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast, God brings his people to this roaring Jordan River when he didn't have to, and he makes it very clear to them, if you are going to get across and be saved, God will have to do it. And you know, he does that with our salvation too. Uh, I I don't know about you, but there's that moment um, in the process of salvation. I think this is true of many people when, when God exposes you and he leads you inside to the Jordan River flowing inside of your heart and you find it to be a cesspool, stinking and filthy. And others may not see it, but you see it and you know it and you see floating on that cesspool all your good and righteous deeds like stinking rags in the filth. And there's that moment of almost despair. Here I am, Lord, here's my heart and this is what it's really like. I can't save myself. God brings his people to the river Jordan to say, if you're going to be saved, my beloved ones, I'm going to have to do it. And that truth and that principle is still the same for each one of us today. If you have been saved, it's not you. You couldn't do it. It's too big. Only God could do it. But you know, it's not just salvation, is it? Although that's true, I love the old hymn writer, August Top Lady. And he, he put the problem like this, he says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And then as he sums it up, he, he finishes like this. And this, is, this maybe is arguably my favorite hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. So we can't save ourselves, and we don't. God saves us in his wonder, but then it's not just salvation, it's actually, it's actually through our life of discipleship as well that God brings us to Jordan Rivers. 
to show us that we can't save ourselves. Not just at the beginning, it happens time and again. Um, so I'll give you a personal example. I love going to church planting conferences. They're, really, they're actually really exciting. Um, it builds my faith, and, and I see other churches and other people who are reaching out in faith to, to plant churches. It's really encouraging. But let me tell you, it can very easily become a glory-hunting fest. You know, everyone's here to gather together, and you know what happens? Yeah, we're all gathered here under the banner of Jesus and planting churches, and then, then one of the breaks, it's like, so, I mean, how big's your church now? <laughs> oh, really? Right. And then you wait, how big's yours? Well, actually, you know, we're significantly large because we've, you know, we don't read it. Well, how, how many churches have you guys planted? Oh, just one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, good, good on you. That's awesome. You know, and, and there very quickly becomes in the heart of a whole bunch of pastors this glory hunting thing, which is like, it's about me. You know, like, this is, this is my moment of glory. Let, let, let's celebrate together how great I am. You know, like, this is what happens so often. And I'm still tempted every time I go to a church planning conference to end up in that place. But God in his grace did something which I will never forget. At the time, I was not impressed with him about this happening. But looking back, it was his wisdom. So I think I've shared this before. In 2012, I was leaving the army. We were going to plant this new church, sitting on a hill, Geelong. And, and I did what seemed to be a great idea, which was I went into the Canadian wilderness for three weeks, um, two of which were just silence, solitude, fasting, just me and God. And in my, my view, I would come out of that having received a big dose of spiritual steroids. I was pumped, ready for the work ahead, you know, the gospel work ahead. It was like it would have, you know, it was this spiritual crack cocaine. God and me in the wilderness, I'm going to come out like Moses and we're going to take this hill. You know, so that's what I thought. The reality was horrible. The first few days were okay, and then God just started to break me down. And he, he wasn't gentle. Like, I didn't, I just saw all of my own inadequacies and weaknesses, the areas where God was still working in my heart. He was still dealing with my mess. And then I saw the big needs of, of what was going to happen and, and how the, the, it was, all of these things were impossible. And I actually had what I think was a spiritual breakdown. I, I don't know if you've ever had one of those. It wasn't fun. And I, I remember coming out of that wilderness and, um, and calling up Dana and, and saying, and I just couldn't stop crying. I was just bawling my eyes out on the phone, and in, in between all the sobs, I was, I was just saying, no, this is a mistake. I don't know where we got this stupid idea from, but this is not going to happen. I, I could, we can't do this. It's impossible. I can't do it. I'm the wrong person. This is definitely not what God is wanting us to do. And, and then she's just, yes, honey, yes, honey, that's all right. That's all right. And, you know, she was very, she didn't say, didn't say yes or no. She was like, but I think then apparently she got off the phone and went, ah, what are we going to do? <laughs> We're already moved, Andrew. What's going to get you? Anyway, but... Um, but my point is, is that in that moment, God showed me that if what we were going to do was survive, let alone thrive, it'd be God who did it. For the first time I saw, I can't do it. I can't. The river is too deep and I'm going to drown. So God does that for you too, you know, as he does it for me, as he continues to do it for me, because we are glory-hungry creatures. And he will allow us to be confronted with the reality of our own weakness, our own helplessness, so that our eyes might be lifted off ourselves and lift on him. 
and he does it because of his love for us, and which is why I don't think you should miss who is on the move in this chapter. Uh, I read some commentaries the last couple of weeks, which it's just like it's a migration of ancient Near Eastern peoples. And it's all very interesting about how they, you know, it's, it's just like a, it's like, oh, this is an interesting historical textbook about people moving from one country to another. But the Bible actually says, oh no, it won't let you in Joshua escape the fact, Joshua chapter three, who's doing it. God's name is mentioned, I don't know how many times it's mentioned, but it's over and over and over and over and over again to the point of, of repetition over and over. Do you know how many times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in one chapter? 17. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. God is reminding his people, you can't cross the river, but guess who can? And I'm in the midst of you. Here I am. And the whole point of it, Joshua chapter 4, verse 23 this is, this is how these two chapters end. This is what it says. Listen to this. Listen carefully. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So God tells you, you know why we're crossing the river when it's at its most full, when there's most danger? So that at the end of it, everybody would turn and go, wow, God is amazing. And you know, for you and I, it's exactly the same, isn't it? God often brings us to the Jordan because Psalm 115, we might actually say it and mean it, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. You see, he brings us to the Jordan River because God is gonna prove himself faithful and he'll get the glory when we can't save ourselves. First point, second point. God chooses the most improbable time and location for his people to come to the Jordan River. Not only because he wants to show his glory and our weakness, but he wants to increase our faith. Do you notice that? So they're told towards, to go directly towards the River Jordan. It's in flood, obviously, but he never tells them what's going to happen next. So, um, Moses, uh, Joshua gets an idea, God, God lets him in. The people don't know. So they're going towards the, the River Jordan and God only shows them the next steps. Uh, a famous preacher of yesteryear, a guy called Alexander McLaren, once said, God opens his hand one finger at a time. And that's what's happening here. He's, he's opening hands one finger at a time. The people don't know where they're going. They only know the next step. And for you and I, I don't know about you, that's frustrating. Because what about the risk assessment? You know, like, what about the strategic plan? What about the next steps, like, five years down the track? You know, like, and, and personally, when God asks us to do something, we go, like, I want to see the script. So if I do this, then you'll do that, and this will happen, and this will be achieved, and we'll have financial security, and, blah, blah, blah. and we have all these things. And I'm not moving until you tell me what's going to happen. Not just the next step, but what's going to happen in five, ten years even up. I'm not going to move until you give me that script, and we don't get the script. The people of Israel don't get a script. God just tells them, next step. It's enough for you that you obey what I've already told you, step by step. And that's faith, isn't it? Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And this, this fact becomes even clearer when the people eventually get to the Jordan River. So God is, the ark has arrived there and they get to the Jordan River and what does it look like now? Exactly the same. It's in flood. 
Have they, on the way, been given miraculous swimming abilities like superpowers they didn't have? No. They get to the river, and the river is still unpassable. They still can't swim, and then this is where it gets particularly frightening. God says to the priests, all right, you got that heavy ark on your shoulders, step out. <laughs> so they're, at, they're standing at the water, and I imagine myself in that position, and I kind of prefer to be on the back of the ark, but that, if you're at the front, the, these two guys either side, they're stepping out into the water. Remember, it's covering brush, it's flowing fast, and you can't swim, probably. And you step out, and that weight bears down on you as you go to the bank, and the next thing, you're in the water, and you're dead. I mean, that's what it must have felt like. And God says, no change. The river's still there. You can put your toe in it. Yep, it's still in flood. You still can't swim. So now step out in the water. <laughs> Not showing us what the next going to happen. He doesn't tell us. And, and, and yet he says to you and I, in a similar way, the process of faith, we don't see all of the little steps in the road, but we're being obedient to the God who knows everything and all of the steps and loves us. And God bless those priests because they step into the, uh, into the water, carrying the ark, and then what happens? Stop. Like a, like a tap turned off. The water piles up, miles up north. It's happened probably already before they step out, actually, but they don't know it. But in the instant they step in, the waters are gone, and they walk through on dry land. And just imagine one of those priests standing in the middle of the river. And maybe, if you're like me, you're still nervous. It's like, because that water's coming back, and I'm still standing in the middle of the river while everyone runs through. But God responds to their faith by a miraculous act. And there's real, there's real encouragement and truth for us here, but there's a caveat, and I need to give the caveat. It's very easy for you and I to read this story of Joshua chapter 3 and go, that's me, I'm Joshua, and this problem I'm currently facing, that's the River Jordan. And so I'm coming, and this is me, Joshua, and God's telling me to step out in faith, and then immediately the problem's going to be removed. It's really easy to come to the Bible and to do that. And Jesus, in one sense, encourages us. You know what he says? He says, if you've got faith just the size of a mustard seed, look at that mountain and say, go and throw yourself in the sea and it will be done for you, Jesus says. So there is an element of truth that when you and I come to the Jordan River of our problems and they seem insurmountable and overwhelming, God says, come in faith and God will make a way, he will shift the mountain. But we cannot anticipate or believe that every time that God will remove the problems that face us, the Jordan River will suddenly part. It's just not the way it works every time. And he didn't for the people of Israel either. Think about it. This wasn't daily fare, walking through rivers, going, saying, let's just, that, that's not something that happened every day. And I find it very interesting that uh, sometimes you'll have Christians say, yeah, but God will always remove every river that you face. But very often he gives us actually the strength to deal with a problem without removing it, to grow us. So, for example, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, who certainly had more than a mustard seed of faith, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God may move the river that's in front of you, 
and he may do it miraculously. He can still do it. The same God that Joshua believed in is the God that you have, if you're a Christian, on your side. He can move any mountain, any river, everything, but he doesn't promise to do it every time. We don't know. All we see is the next step, but what he does promise is that as you wade into the river in front of you, he will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. Even though the actual outcome may not be always what we would want it to be. Uh, The old hymn puts it, and I like this, speaking about confronting the final river, the river of death. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction. That's Jesus Christ. Land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises I'll ever give to thee. I'll ever give to thee. So first, as we come to this this moment in Joshua chapter 3, God is saying, if you're going to come across this river, I'm going to have to do it. You can't save yourself. Secondly, he's growing their faith step by step in obedience to him. Now, thirdly and finally, we're not only glory-hungry creatures, we're forgetful glory-hungry creatures. Chapter 4 is, um, I'm not going into the details of chapter 4 now, it, it's, it's worth your while, as all the scripture is, to read and meditate on it. But let me tell you what happens in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is, goes into great detail about an instruction that God gives to Joshua for all the people. Uh, there's elements of it in chapter 3 as well. When they're in the middle of the river and they're standing in dry ground, the command is that the uh, 12 men are selected, you, 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 representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're to go into the very center of the river with the rocks, which are presumably still wet and slimy, and they're going to pick up a rock as large as they can carry, and they're going to carry it back out of the river. And I always, again, in my weakness, think I would have liked, oh, can we please choose someone else to do that? Like, I just got over the other side. Anyway, back in we go and carry this rock, and then they're told they're going to build it into a memorial. These 12 rocks are going to be like a, a pyramid at the camp where they camp that night. Why? Well, chapter 4, verse 7 says, these rocks will be an everlasting memorial. To what? 4, verse 20, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan River, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. So if you can imagine 50 years later, um, a a dad and his son are going hiking in Gilgal National Park and they're walking along and and the son sees this heaps of rocks. What is that there for, dad? And dad says, I'm glad you asked. These were the rocks that were taken out of the Jordan River when, when my father... When he crossed over, God parted the waters. And it's like, you serious? Yeah, that's what he did. But the waters were in flood. Yeah. They walked right across on dry land. Those stones, they were taken out of the the deep bed of the river. And in some ways, as that dad would share with his son, they'd both participate in the glory of God and what he had done in his world and done for his people. And how we need that reminder. 
I'm very good at asking for things, I think, when I need them from God. Not so good at remembering to thank him when he answers them. You ever find that? Uh, I, I use a, a software tool and have done since we began church planning. And, and I can go back to 2013 and, and look at our prayer night requests. And some of those prayer nights, it was just me and one other person. <laughs> it was, and we were just praying, you know, living. And I can look back at those prayer notes and go, that's amazing. God answered yes to almost every single prayer that we prayed in 2013. But then I think, you know what? But I never, ever bothered to thank him because there was a next need and the next problem and the next challenge. And of course that happened. Yeah, that's great. And there's some element that we're forgetful, glory-hungry creatures, we, and that forgetfulness is not good for us. It gives us a sense of entitlement, and it leads often to a sense of disobedience. We, we, we forget to give God the glory for what he's done. And today, Joshua has, God has Joshua set these stones up so that God's people would remember what he'd already done, and that it'd build their faith for the next things that they were going to be asked to do for the future. And how we finish our, our, well, this part of our service today is the only logical place to, fit, to finish. Because Joshua, it's, these stones are symbolizing the beginning of the old covenant. The covenant of, of the land of promise. But this morning we're gathering to, together to celebrate and remember the new covenant. Far greater than crossing a flooded river and entering a physical land, a new covenant that Jesus said would be founded by his blood. And so this moment casts us back to the Lord Jesus facing the most incredibly stormy, turbulent, dangerous river, gathered with his disciples for that night, knowing exactly what was going to happen the next day. With all the, the powers of darkness gathered, the, all the inner turmoil in his heart and mind, all of these things pouring upon him, knowing that the next day, or just hours ahead, Jesus would be raised up in agony on that cross. The beginning of the, the new covenant, and Jesus says, Luke twenty two nineteen. do this, in remembrance of me. In remembrance, in memoriam. To this in remembrance of me. Now what's he speaking about? He's, he's speaking about that they're sharing the meal together and Jesus takes some bread and then he breaks it and he gives it to him and he says, this is my body. This is my body. Then he takes, he takes the cup and he gives it to them and says, drink this. For this is a new covenant in my blood shed for you, for many, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus takes the bread and he takes the juice. And in one sense, it's like the stones built up at Gilgal. They're just stones. But they're pointing to a deeper significance that changes and works within them and asks them to participate again. And when Jesus takes the bread and he takes the juice and he brings, or the wine, he brings them together and he says, do this in remembrance of me. They're bread and they're wine, but they become something that's far more significant in the life of his people. Jesus says, in remembrance of me. Look to me. Remember as you face your Jordan River, whatever it might be, that I'm with you. I have parted the greatest water of all, the waters of death. I'm alive, but this is how my covenant will be established. You do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
So what we do now is no small thing in the life and community of God's church. We come together as, as a body, obedient to the words of Jesus. And, and at least if you're like me, you go, I don't know how you work through some grape juice and some bread, Jesus. But you tell me that you do. And you tell me that this is spiritually right for me to look back at the cross and what you did and be thankful. So we're going to do that. And this morning, how we're going to do it is uh, the musicians are going to play uh, some music. In fact, you guys can come up if you like, and we'll pray in a moment. And then uh, we're going to have a couple of us are going to serve you. We'll have just one station this morning, so not rush, but as, as you come, uh, I'll serve you or Josh will serve you some bread. And then if you move either side and take the juice and then eat that bread in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and take that cup in remembrance of his shed blood and then as a church, turning our hearts, our thoughts in thankfulness that Jesus has indeed made a way through that river which you and I could never cross. I'm going to pray for us. And then when you're ready, please come forward and take the elements. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we confess that we are so often forgetful people. Caught up in our own glory, forgetting what you've done. Lacking in faith. Wanting to see the end of the script and you tell us is take one step at a time. But right now, oh Jesus, we come to you and as we, we take up the bread and the cup, Lord, we ask that you would fix our eyes on you. You'd remind us what you have done and you would work that change in our hearts so that we may become more and more people of faith and obedience. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.